Well, today we begin what is going to be, I believe, a 38-week leisurely stroll through Mark's gospel. Uh, the good news is it's not 38 straight weeks. This will actually carry us through next Easter. So if you're planning ahead, next Easter we're going to wrap up Mark. Uh, but between now and then in August, we'll have guest preachers in like we have done for the past two years. We like to bring guys in, give them a chance to preach and share. Um, it gives me a chance to not have to do sermon prep for a month and do some other things that are uh, healthy and good for the life of the church. Uh, we will do an Advent series that will carry us through Christmas. We'll do uh, some New Year's uh, stuff and vision sermons to start the year. And then so it will actually break up into three 13-week sections as we work through uh, the Gospel of Mark. When we started a little over two years ago, we've gone through. I, I had to go back and look in my folder to make sure I had all these, and here's hoping I can remember them. We started with Colossians, uh, then we went through Ruth, then we did the Sermon on the Mount, then we did Joy to the World for Advent, then we picked back up on the Sermon on the Mount, then we did the seven sayings of Jesus, or the I Am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John for Lent, then we did the Psalms of Ascent for the summer last year, then we did Philippians this past fall, then we did Jonah to start the year, then we did the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross for Lent this year, and now we open up Mark's gospel. And so this is the first gospel we've gone through together as a church, so I'm excited about that a lot, actually, more, more so maybe than I should be. Um, I really geeked out getting ready for this over the past uh, two weeks. And so tonight, as we start, what I want to do, um, and I, the other book is in my bag, and I'll get it out if you want to see it afterwards. Usually what we try to do when we go through a series or a book is we try to highlight some resources for, that are available to everyone that's not a technical pastoral resource. Um, and so one of the things that we try to bring in every time we're working through a book are these ESV scripture journals. And so we have them up the front uh, for sale for five bucks. But what this is, is it's the gospel of Mark. And on one side, you've got text. And on another side, you've got uh, just blank lines for taking uh, notes. And so that's handy as we work through a book, especially if we're going to take the better part of a year to go through Mark. It would be handy to keep that maybe in your desk at work or in your car or uh, just where you're going to keep notes throughout uh, our time together through the gospel of Mark if you're meeting with someone for discipleship. There's not a lot of other stuff written on Mark that's not real technical commentaries. Uh, and so the only other real book I have to recommend is a book called King's Cross by Tim Keller, where Keller doesn't look at every episode in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but he looks at key episodes to help us understand the life of Jesus, the story of history and our own life through the telling of Mark's uh, Gospel. And so it's been republished under a new name, and I, that name escapes me, um, but it's called uh, King's Cross. So if you're Harry Potter fans, it should be really easy to remember. And he pays homage to Harry Potter in the opening of uh, the book. And so I would encourage you to pick that up, however you prefer to read. It's just something that I'm going to be reading through to help get ready for Sundays, but it's also just a way to make the gospel more accessible. And then I'm going to open with just a plea for you to go invest some money in a really good study Bible. Whether it's an NIV study Bible, whether it's the ESV study Bible, the Gospel Transformation study Bible, there are a myriad of study Bibles out there, but the ESV and the NIV study Bibles I use every week when I'm getting ready to preach. And a lot of what I will reference sometimes uh, throughout big portions of a sermon, anything that I bring in from the outside, 
are from those study Bibles. And so they're written not just for pastors. They're written for everyday people to be able to pick up the Word of God, read the Word of God, and then through easy-to-understand notes and different articles and things, understand what's going on. And so they have a bevy of information about the time between the Old and the New Testament, which we're going to look at briefly tonight. So I'll just say if you're planning your budget for next year, or maybe you have an unlimited book budget, or maybe you're thinking about picking up a new Bible, um, they're cumbersome. Leave them at home and bring the Bible on your phone or a thinner Bible because you don't want to have to carry a big one of those around, but they are worth having uh, just as a resource so that you can be in the Word of God for yourself, and that's what we pray would be the case. So tonight, we're going to highlight in our time together when Mark was written, why Mark was written, the social and historical setting for when Jesus ministered, and lastly, our hope for what God through the Spirit may do in and through us, both individually and as a church body, as we spend extended time in Mark's gospel. And my prayer for us as a church is that at the end of our time in Mark, we will see Jesus as the one, according to Mark 10:45, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and that we would follow his lead in cross-bearing discipleship and service. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that in your divine wisdom, you knew that we would need the scriptures. And so you gave them to us. You condescended to our level. And you gave us your scriptures in language that we could read and understand. You gave us scripture so that we would not have to feel around in the dark wondering what the character and nature of the God we worship and serve is. You gave us the scriptures so that we would know. And so, Father, our aim and our goal is to walk through the scriptures faithfully, to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be brought to confession and repentance, to be brought to rejoicing in our salvation. And so, Father, as we work through Mark over the next 39 weeks, Father, I pray that you would do a great work in and through us, that we would see Jesus on the move, that we would see Jesus living out the gospel through both declaration and demonstration. And I pray to God that it would challenge us to be sure that we are doing both, proclaiming the lip, proclaiming the gospel with our lips and demonstrating the gospel with our life. That's something we can only do by the power of your spirit at work in us and as we humbly submit ourselves to the scriptures and walk with one another through life. So Father, would you do in and through us what only you can do? In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be in Mark tonight, but I'm not really going to reference any scripture. So come back next week and we'll be in where we actually talk about Mark. This is going to be uh, hopefully not dry and boring, but it's going to be a lot of background. uh, Because when Mark starts, if you've got your Bible and you were to open to Mark 1, Mark starts in Mark 1.1, and I'm going to read you this. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark writes not primarily for us in the 21st century. Mark writes well aware that the people that would read his gospel would be 
intimately aware of what had gone on in the years leading up to Jesus' arrival, through the years of Jesus' ministry, through the years of after, just, pre, just after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Mark doesn't give us the background like Luke and Matthew do, or even John. John establishes Jesus as co-creating with the Father well, Mark just jumps in and says, well, here he is, and this is what John is doing. And so tonight what we want to do is we want to lay the foundation and the framework so that when we pick up Mark 1-1 next week, we're aware at least a little bit of the context and the situation in which Mark presents his gospel. The gospel of Mark was written sometime between the mid-50s to early 60s A.D. by John Mark. Now, Mark came from a well-to-do family that was instrumental in the life of the early church. Mark's mother's home served as a gathering place for the early church in Jerusalem, and it was this house that Peter first went to when he was miraculously set free from prison. Acts 12, 12 through 16 records that incident. We know that Mark was a relative of Paul's travel companion, Barnabas. Paul references that in Colossians 4.10. John Mark later traveled with Paul and Barnabas on missionary journeys. This is recorded in Acts 12, 25 and Acts 13, 2 through 3. Until a later, a falling out over John Mark caused Barnabas and Paul to split in their respective missionary journeys for some time. And that's recorded in Acts 13, 13 and 15, Acts 15, 36 through 39. And later, Mark would be restored in his relationship with Paul and would work closely with Paul during his final imprisonment in Rome. And you can see in Paul's letter, 2 Timothy 4, 11, where Paul asked for Timothy or for John Mark to be sent to Rome to help him. So we need to understand where Mark got his material for his gospel account. As connected as Mark's family was with the early church, Mark was not an original disciple of Jesus. But Mark was the personal attendant who served the apostle Peter. And so Mark's gospel is the carefully recorded words of Peter whom Mark served under as an attendant and writer during the latter part of the apostle's life. It's believed that, Paul, that Mark wrote his gospel, which is Peter's direct telling of his understanding of all that went on between Jesus and the disciples in Jesus' ministry, that John Mark wrote his gospel while in Rome, going back and forth between serving both Peter and Paul, who were imprisoned in Rome at roughly the same time. Mark's gospel is the words of Peter have been accepted throughout church history due to the witness of both the Apostle John, who testified to this truth in, around, in and around 90 AD, and the early church father, Papias, a bishop of Hierapolis, I think is how you say that word, bishop of H, around 120 AD. And so there is nothing new. We know that all of uh, the gospels, uh, there's debate around who wrote what or where they got their source material from, but it has been accepted down through the ages that John Mark wrote his gospel as essentially the abbreviated memoirs of Peter. And you're going to see it because as we work through the gospel of Mark over the next 38, 39 weeks, you're going to see that there's never a point where Peter isn't present in all of Jesus's interactions. In all of the important moments, Peter is present, and Peter is put in Mark's gospel in the most negative light of the gospel accounts, because Peter's very aware of his own 
weakness. Peter is very aware of his own failures. And so as we read through it, I want you to trace and pay attention to how Peter talks about himself. But these are the words and the memories of Peter. All of the Gospels, the good news, were written to proclaim that God's plan of salvation by which he would forgive, redeem, and restore his children have been fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, each Gospel was written to a different audience and sought to show the truth of who Jesus was and what he did from various perspectives. According to the Gospel Transformation Bible, Mark's Gospel was written to help people from all kinds of backgrounds Understand the coming of Jesus as the culmination of God's work with Israel and the entire world. So Mark did not write for a narrow readership. Mark wrote down Peter's words for a wide audience to read. And so what you're going to see throughout Mark's gospel, and you see it even in those first few verses where he talks about, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Mark is going to work to show his initial readers and us, the readers of his gospel down through the ages, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophesied. There was a twofold reason for this focus on Jesus being the culmination of God's redemptive work. First, a lot of those who initially heard Mark's gospel were not Jewish by birth. Therefore, Mark spends time familiarizing his audience with the customs of Israel so they can clearly see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. And so Mark knew that there would be a lot of people who would hear his gospel read, the memories of Peter, and they would be largely unaware of the Jewish rites and customs that influenced how Jesus was received by his own. And so Mark works to very briefly but very very powerfully explain what the history of God's people down through the ages meant for how Jesus was received and interpreted in various situations and moments. And second, Mark is working to show how Jesus, as a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, gives validity to the gospel message. The NIV Study Bible says, large-scale Jewish rejection of the gospel also raised concerns about the gospel's validity. As Paul does in Romans 9 through 11, Mark grounds both the gospel and its rejection in Israel's own scriptural tradition, showing his story's continuity with God's previous promises and Israel's persistent rebellion. In antiquity, A religion was considered valid and worthwhile if it was old and had been around for a long period of time. The newer it was, the more suspiciously it was viewed when it came to religions. The older it was, the more you had to draw from, the more people knew about your religion's history and could debate it and weigh it against their own philosophical and religious understandings of the world and life and meaning and ethics and all those things. The more history you had to draw from, the more valid your religion seemed to be. And so Mark is working to establish Christianity not as a new religion that is an offshoot of Judaism, but he's working to show that Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so it does not veer to the right or to the left. It is rather the continuation of the story that started with the creation 
of the world. Mark works to show, Mark works to show that Christianity then isn't something new so much as it is the fulfillment and continuation of the Hebrew scriptures that trace back to the creation of the world. And if we're honest, you can't get much older than the creation of the world. If that's where you're grounding the beginning of your story, you're going back as far as anyone will go. And so Mark says, this is why I write to explain these things to you. This is, this is what's influencing Mark's thoughts as he takes Peter's words and records them carefully, and they become the gospel of Mark. Is he wants those who are unfamiliar with the Jewish traditions and rites and rituals to know and understand what all Jesus fulfilled in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And he's also working to ground the story of Jesus and the good news of the gospel in antiquity so that the Romans and those who, there, who would be exposed to the gospel would not be immediately dismissive of this new religion, but they would embrace it as a continuation of an older, established, dignified religion in their eyes. And so that's when it was written, and that's why it was written. And now, for most of the rest of our time, we're going to look at the historical and social background that was present when Jesus ministered. Now, if we're honest, a lot of us, we read, maybe we read Malachi, maybe we don't, maybe we're not really sure outside of that we know Malachi's last book in the Old Testament. What all went into where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins and what all fills in the gap that in most of our Bibles is maybe one or two pages that are blank. There's a lot that happens within those roughly 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. And so what we want to do is we want to take just a few minutes tonight and set the stage for when Jesus arrived on the scene, especially as Mark tells the story of Jesus' gospel. Now, we know that Mark wrote his gospel in the mid-50s to early 60s, but he is writing about a specific time frame from roughly 5 B.C. through roughly 33 A.D. This particular period of history and the attendant social factors all influenced how those who were Jewish by birth and by faith, anticipated God's promised deliverer. It influenced how Jesus was received. It influenced how Jesus chose to reveal himself. And it ultimately influenced those who would cry out for him to be crucified. And so we're going to be better equipped to work through Mark if we take just a few brief moments to touch on some of the more important historical and social factors in play. Historically speaking, from 722 B.C. through 135 A.D., Israel was dominated by various foreign powers. There was never a time outside of a brief window in there. For the most part, Israel lived under the rule and reign of foreign entities. Kingdoms would rise to power and rule over Israel until a new, stronger power overthrew, overthrew Israel's current rulers. During this stretch of time, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, and the Romans all ruled over the Jewish people with a brief interlude of Jewish independence from 166 to, 66, to 63 B.C. 
And it was in 63 BC that a dispute arose between two men competing for the throne of Jerusalem as part of the Hasmonean dynasty. And as Hyrcanus, I think that's right, the second, and Aristobulus the second, man, I should have just abbreviated names, warred for the right to lead. There were those within Israel, within Jerusalem, who reached out to Pompey, the great general from Rome, and asked Pompey to come in and help quell the uprising and reestablish order in Jerusalem. And so Pompey gladly accepts the invitation, comes in with his Roman troops, overthrew both men who were warring for the throne, and promptly established Judea as a client of the expanding Roman Empire. And so in just a few short months, they went from warring about how to maintain their freedom to gladly conscripted under the ever-expanding Roman Empire as a new client state by Pompeii. And this is what the ESV Study Bible explains about this time frame when Pompeii comes into Jerusalem. Pompeii enters the temple and the most holy place. To the Jews, this was the ultimate insult and sacrilege. The Romans could not understand why the Jews resented the various exercises of privilege and control by their conquerors. Hence, deep suspicion and ill will began growing, lasting over a century until the Jews rebelled and the Romans destroyed the Jewish state in 73 A.D. The New Testament reader must remain aware of this seething undercurrent that colors much of what takes place even during the ministry of Jesus. So this is the background. This is what has happened as Jesus is born and as Jesus is growing up and becoming a man and as he's working for his father Joseph, as he's being prepared to step into his role of public ministry as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the long-awaited Messiah, all of this has taken place in the intervening years. And so Jesus does not walk into a calm, cool, collected Israel where everybody thinks and agrees on what exactly God will do when he does send his promised Messiah, on exactly what it looks like to remain a faithful Jew under ever-changing hands of foreign rule and domination. By this point, you have to imagine that the Jewish people were largely tired of living with the boot of a foreign power across their necks. That is just the historical aspect of it. Socially, the Jewish people were not as uniform as we often think of them. Most of the time when we start to read a gospel, we think, that we think of the Jewish people very monolithic. They were one certain group of people. Everybody thought the same way. Everybody worked the same way. Everybody worshiped the same way. Everybody had the same view about who God was and how God operated and what God would be doing. But when you read and you study and you begin to piece together what was going on in Israel during the time of Jesus, you see that they were wide and varied in their interpretations of the scriptures, in their applications of the law, in their anticipations of the Messiah. And so Jesus steps into not only, historically speaking, a hectic time in the life of the nation of Israel, but he steps into a very diverse and a very broad-ranging view of opinions on exactly what God was up to in all these years 
of silence. While most everyday blue-collar Jews just worried about surviving the day, there were four distinct parties who tried to make sense of what faithful Jewish living looked like under Roman rule. They're going to show up. All but one of these groups will show up throughout our reading of Mark's gospel, and they're all throughout the rest of the gospels and even into a lot of Paul's writing in the New Testament. So I want to briefly explain or define each party and how they fit in to the overall social fabric of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. The first group were the Sadducees. This was a small group of Jews who were willing to work closely with the governing Romans. They were in control of the priesthood throughout much of the New Testament, and their theology and doctrine was based solely on the five books of Moses or the Torah. Therefore, they rejected the increasingly popular belief in resurrection. And so the Sadducees were small, but they were powerful. They controlled the priesthood, which meant that they controlled the worship life of Israel throughout much, if not all, of Jesus' earthly ministry. They thought that everything about how to live as a faithful Jew could be best understood only from what was clearly taught in the five books of the law, the Torah. And they had no interest in or no belief in this ever-growing thought that perhaps there would be a resurrection from the dead. And so you're going to meet them throughout Mark's gospel and throughout other gospels. The second group that doesn't necessarily show up as much, and we kind of have to infer that they're there, are the Essenes, and they're not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but they were active during this time, and we know much about one particular community through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Qumran community was disenchanted with the temple establishment of the day, meaning they did not see eye to eye with the Sadducees, and so they moved to the wilderness to reestablish a pure worship of the Lord. They were devoted to a strict interpretation of the law and to personal purity, eagerly anticipating the appearance of the Lord to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. We're two groups in, and already we have wildly divergent views about what temple worship should look like, about how closely you can or cannot partner with the governing authorities that rule over you. And I forgot to mention with the Sadducees, because of their close proximity to governing power, they had no real vibrant hope for anyone to deliver them. They just kind of enjoyed being as close to power as they were. And so they held no real anticipation of a Messiah, a warrior king in the line of David coming to set them free. The group that we're probably all most familiar with that was active throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels, are the Pharisees. And this is the group most often debated by Jesus. They lived among the everyday people and they exercised great influence. They practiced a strict purity that often took the form of them separating from anything deemed impure. If you've read through any of the Gospels, you can already call to mind maybe three or four instances where the Pharisees and Jesus have a run-in over this idea of what's pure and what's impure and how close or how far away people of God need to stay from what they would consider impure. They tried to convince the average Jewish person to join their pursuit of purity. They tried to direct the life of the Jews through their interpretation of the law 
Their interpretations became so authoritative in the everyday life of the Jews that, they, that their interpretations came to be regarded as an oral or a second law. The Pharisees were the only party to survive the temple destruction of 70 AD, and they served as precursors to modern-day rabbis. Three groups, three distinct but separate understandings of how God was currently working in the world, how they should live in response to what God was doing in the world, and even their anticipation of what God may do to set his people free. And then fourth, and not really mentioned at all, we kind of think maybe that John the Baptist would have been in or around an Essene community when he was out in the wilderness, but there's no definite proof of that. The fourth one that's not mentioned at all really in the New Testament but was definitely active were the zealots. This group of Jews embraced the violence against the Romans as a way of purifying Israel from foreign influence. They sparked the rebellion against Rome that brought upon Israel the disaster of Roman invasion from 66 to 73 AD. The zealots thought the best way to purify Israel was not to just stick to what they knew, but to actively seek a violent recourse against the Roman Empire. And the zealots, in their desire to purify themselves, got the whole nation state destroyed. They couldn't leave good enough alone, and they kept pestering the Romans and challenging the Romans in an attempt to gain independence and purity from this pagan country that ruled over them. And so Rome rolls in and lays waste to everything and effectively ends the Jewish state in 73 A.D. So these are the four philosophies, the four parties, the four groups that tried to provide some sort of sway, some sort of interpretation, some sort of this is how an effective person of God should live under Roman rule. But they were widely varied in their interpretations, in their applications, in their anticipations, and ultimately in their responses to Jesus when he begins his public ministry. With such broad and diverse views, it should come as no surprise that there were also mixed views on if and when the Messiah would appear, what the Messiah would do once he arrived on the scene, or if God would even send a Messiah at all. And all of this will come into play as we work through the Gospel of Mark. So we've set the stage by understanding when Mark wrote his Gospel. We've, uh, we've set the stage for why Mark wrote his gospel. We've taken a brief look at the historical social setting that's going to be in play when Mark begins to write in Mark 1.1 about the ministry of John the Baptist. Everything we've talked about is in play, it's present, it's happening in real time as Jesus does his ministry. Kind of like 24, these events occur in real time. So it is when we read the gospel of Mark, these events occur in real time. They're not felt bored descriptions of something that may or may not have happened. These are real people with real emotions, with real feelings, with a real desire as maybe off as it may be about what faithful living for God looked like. They were all people who at the very least we would say had a genuine desire to live faithfully for God in a world that had no real use for them. 
And so there is something to be admired about how, even though we're going to see that they're all wrong, and even the disciples get it wrong, there's something to be admired about a collective desire in each of these four parties to do their best to live faithfully as God's people under foreign rule. And so what then is the purpose of Mark? Not the why it was written, but the, what is Mark trying to show us in his writing? What's maybe the one banner theme that hangs over all 16 chapters of Mark's gospel? The people of God in the first century lived within a culture, both inside and outside of Jerusalem, that presented a unique challenge for how they would live as God's people. While various groups, as mentioned above, fought for right living and purity, it is widely believed that most Jews simply assimilated their distinct Jewish faith to their pagan surroundings along the path of least resistance. That is where most of the people of God lived when Jesus arrives on the scene, was in an assimilation of their distinct Jewish heritage along a line or along a path of least resistance to the Roman pagan culture that ruled over them. And if we're honest, doesn't this sound eerily familiar to Christianity in the Bible Belt South? We've lost the desire to contend for our faith through both proclamation and demonstration. And so we've allowed culture to co-opt our faith for purposes other than what Jesus and the disciples teach in the New Testament. In light of all this, it makes sense for Mark's main theme and our main theme for the next 38 weeks to be discipleship. If we're honest, this is a word that we throw around quite frequently, but we are all, I would imagine, a little fuzzy on how we define discipleship. We're probably a little unclear on what actually makes a healthy disciple. And we're largely uncertain of how we go about being disciples who make disciples. Discipleship, like gospel-centered and other various buzzwords that have been floating around in the South or in evangelicalism for the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years are all thrown around as if we understand what we're talking about. But if we're honest and we wrote it down and I passed out paper, we would all write very different definitions of what is a disciple, what makes a healthy disciple, and how do you become a disciple who makes disciples. And so what we want to do as we work through Mark's gospel is allow the word of God to clarify our understanding of what discipleship looks like. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible gives the best succinct summary of the discipleship theme in this quote that follows. And it's a rather lengthy quote, but hang with me. This is the quote. The ultimate purpose of Mark in the context of God's unfolding redemptive historical pursuit of his people is to testify to Jesus' summons of grace. That is his summons to discipleship. Discipleship in Mark represents nothing less than God's ultimate restoration of his universal people to the original creation design purpose, namely to walk with God and to be restored as true image bearers of God. 
Discipleship then is not merely a certain code of conduct for the disciples. Being a disciple of Christ means joining the people of God in God's creation, coming under his eternal covenant and kingly rule, and living in dependence on God rather than independence from him. We ultimately see that discipleship in Mark flows from dependence upon the master's captivating and exemplary person, formative teaching, and atoning work. Discipleship is Jesus' summons to grace. But discipleship is also a summons to die. If my memory serves me correctly, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. And so when we work through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see a myriad of teachings, a myriad of moments where we will be confronted with, will we die to ourselves every day? Will we die to independent living and throw ourselves fresh every morning and in every instance on a true dependence on God for how to live out a life of faith that pleases Him and grows us in Christ-likeness? And so it is going to be a repeated summons to discipleship, a repeated summons to grace, a repeated reminder of what Christ has done for us in and through his life and death and resurrection, and it is going to be a repeated summons to lay our life down. But can I just push it one spot further? And can I say that maybe this is why we struggle with how to properly define healthy discipleship, growing discipleship. Discipleship is a call to daily death. But discipleship is also a call for us to prepare ourselves to die physically. Think about how all the Gospels play out. What is the culmination of all of Jesus' life and teaching. It is his death. Not death to self in a philosophical sense. Actual physical death. And as I've prepared and as I've begun to study and read through, I've become convinced that one of the things we don't talk about enough when we meet for discipleship is how are we preparing to die? Because we're all going to. And here's why I think that matters so much for discipleship. When you begin to understand and follow Jesus as a disciple who is preparing to physically and literally die well, you're able to let go of a lot of the sin that so easily entangles you in this world. And if the goal of discipleship is the formation of Christ's character in us, then it should also create in us a deeper, truer longing to see our Savior face to face. 
Could it be that a real summons to discipleship is a summons to be prepared to die? The last enemy to be defeated is death. And so we're all going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we're not coming out on the other side alive in this life. But we will come out on the other side in eternity. And the question we have to ask ourselves is how am I preparing now to meet my Savior face to face? That'll change how you pray for one another in discipleship. That'll change how you pray for your wife. It'll change how you pray for your kids. It'll change how you approach your job. It will fundamentally change your view on everything if you begin to think of true, honest, biblical discipleship as not only a summons to, metaphorically speaking, lay down your life in day-to-day moments where you must choose to both love God and others through acts of service, but if we view discipleship as a real, honest preparation for our own selves to meet our Redeemer face to face. And so Mark's going to summon us to discipleship. And I believe we'll be better for it. We'll be better prepared to live for Christ now if we understand that all of our life of discipleship is preparing us to die so that we can meet him face to face. Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross and the Introduction, says this. Jesus has come. Anything can happen now. Mark wants us to see that the coming of Jesus calls for decisive action. Jesus is seen as a man of action, moving quickly and decisively from event to event. There is relatively little of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Mainly, we see Jesus doing. Therefore, we can't remain neutral. We need to respond actively. So if discipleship is going to prepare us to die, discipleship is going to work in us to form the character of Christ in us as the Spirit through God's Word and through prayer and through accountability and community and walking out this life of faith with one another. If discipleship is going to prepare us to die, then we better get busy living. We better get busy living for the kingdom. And this is the second greatest conviction that settled in my heart as I prepared for tonight and begin to prepare long term for our time in Mark. That's why I'm glad we're in Mark. Keller says that there is almost none of Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel. Almost all we see Jesus doing is being active in living out what it means to live as one fully devoted and fully surrendered to God. And this is my great fear for us as a church. And I've told people this in our Get to Know Restoration meetings, and I'll tell it to you now. My greatest fear for us as a church is that we would love to talk about discipleship, and we would love to talk about the gospel, and we would fail to ever live for the gospel. You can convince yourself that talking about the gospel is the same as living the gospel, and it's not. I'm not saying that we become willy-nilly. Kids don't say that anymore. Probably people that are 80 or older say (laughs) willy-nilly. I'm not advocating that we're going to become loose with our theology. I'm not advocating that we're going to take the scriptures any less seriously. 
what we are going to be confronted with as we look at Jesus on the move is what are we doing with our life now? Are we simply talking about what we may do one day for the kingdom? Or are we waking up every day taking what we know to be true of who God is and who Christ is and what he's called us to do from the scriptures and pouring our lives out in service to the gospel? This is my greatest fear. Is that we would live only to talk. And we would never, never give ourselves to living to do. We must do both. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to give yourself to the study of the scriptures and the study of theology to rightly know and worship and honor and adore your God for who he is and what he has done through his only son, Jesus Christ. But to love your neighbor as yourself is to not sit with your nose in a book 15 hours a week wondering why nobody will approach you about the gospel. To love your neighbor as yourself is to care about your neighbor enough to invest to care about your co-workers to care about your family to care about your friends and invest we cannot do the command of christ love god and love others if we only ever are concerned with jesus teaching and we never take time to wrestle with how we be about the doing We want to join Mark in knowing Jesus. We want to join Mark in loving Jesus. And we want to join Mark in doing what we see Jesus doing as we seek to be active, not passive disciples of our great Savior. God help us. Let's pray.